Welcome to the Sailing Into Oblivion podcast, where we hear stories from everyday people who do extraordinary things. I'm your host, Jerome Rand. Good morning, and welcome aboard, Mighty Sparrow. It is a frosty, cold day down here in South Carolina. The winds have been blowing like crazy. Uh, We had that huge weather system sort of come through. It rained most of the day yesterday, and now it is just cold and still windy. But at least the sun is shining, so might be able to get a little, little work done on the old varnish up on the old bowsprit. It's it's been almost completely taken apart, and uh, work has commenced on getting that thing redone, rebuilt, and ready to go again. So we shall see. But uh, before we get into the next installment of uh, sailing around the Atlantic. Uh, I wanted to answer some of the questions from a few of the patrons that uh, hit me up over the weekend and stuff, and uh, mostly it's just about navigation and the charts, and essentially sort of what my what my deal is. So I'll try and keep it brief, maybe 10, 15 minutes, so if you just want to get to the uh, the adventure, then just skip forward a little bit and you'll be there. But before we start... I do want to say, if you do want to support the podcast, you can go over to the Patreon page and uh, hit that up, or obviously you can pick up a copy of Sailing into Oblivion, the trip around the world. So basically, the charts that I use for the journeys I go on are all the big ocean charts. Uh, I have the east coast of the Caribbean and... Then I've got the Gulf of Maine is probably the smallest area chart that I own. Um, just because, and we're talking paper charts here, just because, you know, when you're out on the big, big ocean and you're offshore, there is no need for serious detail and having 10,000 charts. Um, you know, I, I do have other sort of small area charts of places Like, uh, I had a lot of the South Pacific Island charts, but again, those were pretty big area charts. So, because I wasn't planning on doing any stopping, um, but it is good to have a few emergency charts. Uh, I remember on the big trip around the world, one of the things I I neglected to have was a really, really in-depth chart of uh, the Falkland Islands because I had to sort of pull in there for that food drop and I had to do it blind. So that was not, uh, that was a stressful, stressful time <laughs> in my life. I think I describe it as one of the best, worst days I've ever had. Uh, very scary, but once I was able to somehow pull it off, got pretty lucky and, uh, and then I felt pretty good. So in any event, uh, I do have a chart of the Falkland Islands and mostly uh, Port Stanley, so if I ever have to stop there again, it'll be a piece of cake, and I'll know exactly where I'm sailing into. Uh, but yeah, as as far as the charts go, I've I've just typically I have the full ocean charts, and then I've got the full world chart for doing, you know, position reports on. And typically, I will do just one noon 
plot every day and I'll do it on the full ocean, say the North Atlantic, and then I'll flip over every other day and do a noon position on on the full world chart because that one you might move only uh, a quarter of an inch or so on that one on a, a bad day on a good day you might move half an inch that's about it but as far as plotting all that stuff that's that's typically all all I'm doing and again it's because I'm offshore you know everything gets far more complicated and uh more important when you are getting close to land or making landfall. So I know when I did a lot of sailing in the Caribbean, I had full charts. Uh, they make some great booklet charts of all the all the Caribbean islands, really. And those are real in-depth. They cover your pilotage, getting in and out of some of the harbors and, and the, the points that you need to go. So it all depends on sort of where I'm sailing and what I'm doing. I mean, if I were to set sail off and go, you know, just out to Bermuda, obviously I'd have a, a really in-depth chart of Bermuda for entering and exiting and all that sort of stuff. But as far as the big, big trip stuff, it's, uh, it's typically on my chart table, you're going to usually find about four or five charts all laid out because I do love pouring over them. Um, so I'll have, I think for this trip, initially I started out with the, I had I had the Gulf of Maine chart, and then I had the North Atlantic chart all the way down, plus the world chart. And then I think I also had the South Atlantic chart. And those all just sit on the nav station table all the time. And so I can sort of plot and plan and, and do all that sort of stuff. But, you know, it's it's pretty basic. I mean, I'm normally I'm just running off of the... Uh, I'm getting my position from the AIS, from the GPS there uh, on that, and that's pretty much uh, that's pretty much it. Um, I do every once in a while enjoy whipping out the sextant, and you know if the day is nice and the sun's out and all that sort of stuff. Uh, but it's just it, it's really just a hobby and and something to I I generally like to keep up on it just so that uh, if I really need to, if I lose all electricity or something like that, I know how to still, you know, navigate using the sun. And I think I do a pretty cheap or cheating method uh, as far as it goes with the longitude. Um, I basically do a site an hour before noon, do one at noon, and then an hour afterwards, and, and you're able to do a pretty good calculation and get you within a couple of miles of your position and again you're out in the middle of the ocean so it doesn't really matter too much but um you know if if i'm doing that if i get into it and i'm enjoying it and it's a nice way to fill the day uh usually it takes about a week or so before it's like clockwork and it's fast and and then it's far more accurate as well because you start really you just you get a sixth sense about it um and so so that's pretty good i do have I have two sextants on board. I have a nice one that was given to me by a friend named Phil. And then the other one is just one of those old plastic jobbies, um, sort of a backup. And I've used both of them. And the plastic one works just fine. Uh, but the other one is is definitely a little more nice, uh, especially if you're messing around trying to sight planets and stars and things like that, you know, in the early hours. The, the plastic one's not so great for that, but... 
it's uh it's nice to have a little backup and it's I don't know, it's just it's nice to know that you don't need to rely on on some little screen to tell you exactly where you are. There's there's something in that that I really I've always enjoyed uh about the sailing offshore world is that you can do completely without all this all this electrical stuff and you can still get around and know where you are. So something pretty cool about that, but uh yeah, I mean it's as far as navigating and I, I guess in the realm of, you know, let's say trying to get from the East Coast to uh let's say trying to get from like Maine or Newport New England all the way down to a good spot to cross the equator. Um, as far as navigating that, you know, I'm looking at the weather patterns uh, on the planet. You know, I'm looking at the the variables, the 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 westerlies, the trade winds, uh, the doldrums, all that sort of stuff come into play. And so, you know, I actually had somebody. Uh, text me while I was out there and they were like, why are you so far East? What are you doing? Aren't you going South? And, you know, basically if you want to get down to the equator and you're leaving from Maine, you have to go across and then you got to go down unless, you know, you, you (laughs) love the act of beating into the wind. Um, you know, if you, if you take off from Maine and head straight for the equator, you're going to hit the, the easterly trade winds and just be, it's going to be weeks of, of pounding into the seas and hard on the wind. And that's hard on the boat. You can break stuff. So I, you know, with, with Sparrow not being an upwind machine, essentially I leave for Maine and I'm trying to ride, uh, the lower edge of these low pressure systems coming across from the States, going over towards, uh, Europe. Uh, and because they're flowing in a counterclockwise direction. So if you're on the southern edge, you're getting nice westerly winds. And that's essentially what you're always looking to do when you're sailing. If you can be going downwind, it just makes life easier and the boat is has less pressure on it and all that. But at the same time, you are in a more vulnerable position because you're you're having to deal with those systems and sometimes they get really out of hand out there uh, as as you can see and you know one of the tricky parts about doing any of these big like trips around the uh, world and stuff like that when you leave from the states you have to sort of leave during the hurricane season and it makes it pretty tough because you're 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 putting yourself out into uh into a sea that um can get a little crazy and both times uh it's happened happened on the first trip and it happened on this last trip where i had to deal with named storms and uh, that's never fun it's always pretty scary so that's part of it and then also obviously the gulf stream is a, a big part that's a nice help for sure but it can also um turn your world upside down i mean some of those squalls that i was going through was Holy cow, I think on those, and I was looking at some of the videos. I'm trying to get these videos sorted out. I'm having some computer issues, but uh, hopefully I'll, I'll be able to start putting some stuff on YouTube. But, man, just white carpet. Whew. The the pressure of just the rain coming down and the sound of, of the wind and the rain was just incredible. Um, but, yeah, you know, so going to ride that, ride the westerlies over as far as you can, and then – 
you take a deep dive south once you feel like you're far enough east. And then you're basically reaching, or if you're lucky, you catch some nice northeasterlies and you broad reach straight down towards the equator, get through the doldrums, uh, and you're hoping to be a little closer to Africa so that when the southeasterlies kick in, you again can reach and work your way down into the South Atlantic. So those are some of the considerations that I take into uh, account when, when planning these really, really big voyages. You know, you're, you're trying to work with the planet's wind patterns and wind belts. And again, yeah, I mean, around the equator, you got the doldrums. Then north and south, you've got the easterly trades that point a little bit towards the equator, get through the variables, and then you've got your westerly uh, low-pressure systems, and you try and ride those as best you can. You know, ideally, had I made it down to Cape Horn, uh, what I was looking at probably having to do was try and position myself in front of one of these low pressure systems where down there the winds are going clockwise. And so initially as the low pressure system approaches, it's going to push you. uh, It's the winds are coming from the North. So you ride those, get underneath it. And then you try and catch easterlies uh, to get around Cape Horn sort of going the wrong way. And essentially, yeah, I mean, that was, when I navigate, I'm thinking weather patterns, um, big, big charts, always having backups for position reports and things like that. And, uh, yeah, essentially simplicity at its best. You know, I have an old chart plot around here, but I never use it. It's ancient. I think it's from the early 2000s. It drains a lot of electricity. Um so I pretty much just use the AIS because it spits out your, your GPS coordinates and stuff. But I do have a backup little handheld GPS. And then I guess there was another GPS on the Garmin inReach. So there's backup after backup after backup. And that's sort of the thing you need when you're, you're going to be out there for a long time. But hopefully that answers your question a little bit about navigation. Um, you know, happy to do a whole podcast on it at some point. But I think it might be a fun one to do with somebody who has questions about it that's maybe just starting off. So if I find somebody who's really interested in it, I will uh, grab them, sit them down, put a microphone in front of them, and uh, we can sort of have a dialogue about it rather than me just sort of rambling on. But So we're going to get right into it. Uh, basically, the next podcast is uh, takes place in the doldrums. And... I'm I'm having a tough go of it. The doldrums were were not very forgiving, and uh, I ended up ended up having to battle through quite a bit. Um, so hopefully you guys enjoy it. And uh, again, thanks for listening. And here we go. All right, we are live back here on Old Mighty Sparrow. You may detect a bit of. Uh, Less than excitement in my voice. Uh, that would be because the doldrums are kicking my ass. I'm not going to lie. It has been a struggle. I think we're in day six, something like that. And, uh, oh my gosh, I'm, I am tired. Holy cow, I'm tired. It's been nonstop squalls, 
rain, shifting winds. Oh, I can hear the clanging of the jib sheet on the shroud. Terrible noises, creaks and groans. Sparrow hates it as much as I do. Right now we're at <clears throat> about uh, three degrees, 55 minutes north, and 29 degrees, zero seven minutes west. Uh, which isn't uh, the greatest position to be in when you're trying to get uh, down south and headed towards Cape Horn. Uh, one of the problems that is uh, that I'm facing at this point is basically once the southeast trades kick in, if they're really cranking from the south, it's going to be hard to get past the tip of Brazil. Um, if I can get past tip of Brazil... South America cuts away really fast, uh, and typically the trade winds will be a little more easterly anyway. But uh, So I've had that on my mind, because obviously beating hard into the wind is not very comfortable uh, on any boat, but especially on this one. And uh, it's wearing on me, because I've been doing it for probably almost two weeks at this point I think and it's just uh it's one of those things where it, it wears on you mentally and physically the boat uh it's just it's like you're just pushing it to try and do something it doesn't want to do and you know considering what what sort of the goal is plan a you know is to get around Cape Horn and you know, at least down there, the weather systems will give me opportunities to reach and run and broad reach and obviously beat into the wind as well, too. But uh, you have to work around the systems here. It's just this constant climb. Uh, this is going to be like a complainy, complainy uh, podcast here. Hate to tell you. So you may want to just skip to the next one. But uh before you do, I, I suppose, let me give you just a brief of what I do want to talk about, and that is uh, definitely finding some issues uh, around Old Sparrow. Um, the two main ones are still the ongoing battle with the batteries and them not being able to hold a charge. I haven't used the fridge for a few days, and uh, so we're, we're only dropping down by morning down to about 11.9 volts uh, which isn't too bad but for whatever reason the bilge pump does not want to work <laughs> uh, it doesn't want to expel it all the way up to its little uh, outlet but um, that I think I'm going to put the backup one in there and see if that has anything to do with it it works just fine when, uh, you know, it's high noon and the, the solar panels are, are float charging and we're, we're up to, you know, 14, 14 volts. But, uh, yeah, so I don't know. Um, my brother gave me a great idea to see if I have another dud uh, battery in there. And that is basically you uh, when you've got the solar panels kicking really well. You go in and you isolate each battery and let it charge up. Um, 
and then so basically let let one battery charge up and float charge for i guess like four hours or something uh, a couple hours at least so that you know it's fully topped up then you take that one off and uh, periodically test it and see see what's happening. Usually, if you've got a battery that's that's pretty well dead, it's going to drop really quickly. It's just not going to hold that charge. So, I've got three batteries plus the engine battery going in the bank. And uh, yeah, I mean, if one of those is um, if one of those is <clears throat> pretty much a dud then uh it can be bringing down the whole rest of the bank so i don't know it was crazy the other night i tried to uh i wanted to start the engine and uh, it just did not have it it just it, it, i got it started but boy it was it was a tough sell and uh <laughs> it's not good because oil's been changed uh all that stuff i don't i i guess uh it's it's been a while since I did the last podcast, so uh, we had uh, I went and checked the oil one day to before I fired up the engine, and it was uh, like a gray milkshake. Uh, so water had gotten into the oil and had to go through and do a whole bunch of stuff all in the middle of the night, um, which actually was better because it's a little cooler at that time of day or at that time of uh, at that time, and. Uh, so basically, uh, was able to get that sorted out, which is great. Uh, change fuel filters as well, and uh, and then the engine just it sounded just a thousand times better. It always does. I don't know if that's like a placebo effect of me knowing that I've I've given it some love and uh, and now it's just gonna work better sort of thing. But um, definitely sounds a lot better. Runs smooth. Starts easy. Uh, I'm going to fire up the engine probably today once the batteries are charged up. Just make sure uh, everything seems to be okay. Oil level seems great. But, uh, yeah, so that was a bit of a fiasco. Not really not really fun. And then the other one, the other gripe. Oh, there we go. Rounding up. Right now, basically, we're, we're hard on the wind, which is coming out of the east-southeast. And... Um, so we're headed pretty close to southeast-ish, um, which is exactly where sort of the swell is coming from. So we're, we're punching into this, these waves, um, and at some points it's, it's pretty ridiculous. Boat just hobby horsing over it. It's one of the worst attributes of these old uh, double-enders that, that have a big rounded bow. It, you just lose all your speed. It basically stops you jars you everything i mean it's it's not not fun at all uh so <laughs> uh, i told you this could be a griper but uh had some wind come in i actually started thinking hey i might be uh getting out of the doldrums this was a few days ago and uh ended up winds cranked up over 20 i was like yeah so i start you know take down the jib then I go and put a reef in the mainsail. Probably got a little too carried away with that reef, uh, making sure she was nice and tight. <clears throat> and all of a sudden, luckily I'm standing there, but I hear, and I see the seam has let go for about a foot right uh, right above the, 
right above the clue or the the trailing corner of the sale. And luckily, I've had that sort of stuff happen, so I knew the first and foremost thing to do was to get the pressure off of that sale. So sheet her way out, threw the second reef in, way smaller, and uh, carried on through the rest of the day. Probably lost a knot, maybe a knot and a half of boat speed, and um, and then went uh, went to bed. Woke up and the winds had dropped, so the boat's wallowing. And it's again like three in the morning, and I knew that uh, I had to pull out the sewing machine, which takes about five ten minutes. Get that all set up. Then I had to go take the mainsail off. And meanwhile. The waves obviously had been cranked right up by that big, big uh, blow. And <laughs> so we're rocking and rolling. I get the mainsail off the boom, bring it all down below, stitch it all up. Uh, takes takes literally five minutes to stitch this thing. I mean, a sewing machine is such a nice thing to have on board. But it typically... If it, it takes, yeah, five minutes to fix it, but it takes you an hour and a half to take the sail off and put the sail back on. And meanwhile, the boat's obviously just pitching and rolling with just a sail up and pretty miserable, pretty hot, sweated out about five gallons, it felt like. And then uh, then got her going before sunup, which was pretty cool. I felt I felt pretty good. You know, it's that's one of the things I think, which is what makes the doldrums really hard, is that you don't feel like you're making any progress. And that's how I feel right now is that I'm not making any progress. Every, every mile is a struggle to get. You're constantly, or at least I'm constantly just worried that the, if the Southeast trades kick really good from the South, like that's it. I, I'm done. I'm not going to be able to make Brazil. <laughs> this boat just does not point into the wind and if that happens like literally i have two options at that point is turn north again and just go and get up into try and find some northeast trade winds and a good forecast to see if i can then get further east and then drop back down which we're talking we're talking like two three weeks to do that little maneuver there and uh if it even is possible <laughs> so you're basically talking about getting through the doldrums and then going back through the doldrums north only to come back through the doldrums again to then attempt <laughs> to get into the south atlantic <laughs> oh it's so ludicrous i don't honestly i think i think i would uh, I think I would just take it. I'd take it in the teeth and 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 be like, I screwed up. I should have, you know. And I I know when I look back and I look back at the logbook and all that and the winds and everything, um, it was basically right around the time of Wanda. You know, as soon as Wanda kept dropping down, so I kept dropping down, and obviously, you know, the eye wall hit me. Uh, and all that sort of stuff, which is all well and good. But as soon as I could, I just went south, hard, hard south to try and get away from 
put some distance in between me and that that system. I didn't want to go southeast just in case she sort of kept wobbling over. I was like, get me as far away as I possibly can. Just, you know, in case. I just didn't want it to develop uh, into something really big and then suck me right back in. Uh, listen to that racket. Oh, man. Trying to sleep when that happens every, like, five, ten minutes. It's, uh, it's not easy. Snaps you right out of it. All right. Let me – I got to go – I got to go check the old uh, – <clears throat> Check this squall coming in here. Let's see what, uh, what we got. Is it coming? Huh? Uh, uh, how much time? Uh, okay, I got some time. I got time. Yeah. There is one thing, though, you do get. Uh, you do get a lot of practice with the old uh, reefing and changing of sails and all that. Um, you see a big squall out there, and boy, you wait till the last second now. Before, you're cranking that stuff down like, oh boy, here it comes. Now it's like, oh, okay, I see the wind line. I have 35 seconds. Not trying to brag or anything, guys. Hmm. Oh, man. But, yeah, it's just uh, day after day after day, it's the same stuff. These these massive cumulonimbus systems come in. I, I just call them cells. You get one cell, boom, you get blasted. Sometimes I have to tack because uh, if, it, if I catch it on the wrong side, it'll send me basically sailing to the west. So I try and take advantage of that, which is kind of nice. Um, and you get a nice wash down. And I've been catching water. I caught two gallons of water last night, which is good. And I definitely need to catch some more. Um, that water bladder that I had definitely was nice. But um, I, I've been experiencing the boats like constantly producing mold. Um, it's all over the place. And... I'm battling it with vinegar. I'm battling it with it Clorox. Um, but I think that fresh water, I think in the beginning it was leaking. And uh, what was happening is I had some big memory foam, sort of an old mattress. Uh, chunks of that were sort of sandwiching it in. And so those got basically saturated and... Uh, I think essentially they're just, it was just a constant source of moisture. I mean, it's a boat, so there's always a constant source of moisture, but it was like fresh water sort of thing. And um, yeah, so in any event, I only had about a gallon left in it and it really didn't taste good at all. It was real plasticky and um, uh, what was the other thing? Oh, it kept clogging up the, the pure, uh, or the Brita filter thing. You know, those little household pitcher jobbies. Uh, so I throw, throw some in there, just purify, make it taste a little bit better. And, uh, within, I don't know, two, three days, uh, the filter's all clogged up and I have to sort of run water on it backwards and real ugly kind of brownish colors coming out of it so uh, i don't know 
anyway, so I I emptied the last like half gallon out of it, threw it up forward, and uh, who knows? Well, you know, it's one of those things where that thing could really come in handy. Uh, maybe in the Pacific, um, when when you get a, a huge day of huge huge rain, maybe take it up on deck. See if I can figure out a place to throw it up there. Um, but just to be able to collect like 30 or 40 gallons in one shot, I could, I could hook up the hoses and stuff like that to it. So it'd be super easy because they, you know, right now with the old mainsail, I just collect water in a bucket underneath the gooseneck and not that efficient. Oh man, the winds are picking up. I think I gotta go take that sail down. All right. We're going to take a little breaker here. All right. Cut two. We're back post squall and it was a doozy <laughs> no actually it was a uh false alarm so to speak although we got we we did get a nice little boost in the breeze out of it which seems to be holding uh but we got no rain and i was kind of hoping to fill the old five gallon bucket it looked like a five gallon squall out there but in any event um yeah, we were talking about the bladder. So, yeah, I don't know. It, it, I'm not going to obviously, like, just throw the bladder away or anything, but I do – I need to figure something out with it. Uh, I thought it'd be nice to be able to just put it on deck, but uh, the sun just heating the water up, the bacteria will just grow like crazy. So, not really going to be great. Um, the only thing I can think of is, yeah, if I get, like, a huge rain day, then – where I've, I've topped up everything, my tanks, because I'm now uh, out of the realm of the Sahara dust, so I can actually put this water into my, my tanks, uh, which is good. I uh, can't do that when you're further north because that bacteria will spoil water so fast. It's crazy. Um, but, yeah, so uh, I don't know. It's, it's one of those things... Um, so that's, you know, that's a little issue. But, yeah, when I pulled that, that sucker out, mold everywhere. So I'm just fighting it. But it just seems like, I don't know, it's, it's on all the freaking uh, cabinet hatches and stuff because they're all wood. And I wipe it down, and then, like, a week later, it's back. It's, like, seeping out of the wood, and I don't, I don't understand. I have a decent amount of bleach, and then I have a decent amount of vinegar and i think i'm just gonna have to keep fighting it obviously uh my my impression is that i'm not you have to get like all of it or else it's always going to keep exploding on you so and obviously i i i think it's one of those things where you'd have to gut the boat 100 percent completely and so you're getting under the floorboards. I mean, take basically like a spray bottle of water and bleach and just make sure every single surface inside and out is hit with it um, just to kill off all this mold. So I don't know. It's a moldy boat. I've, uh, I've dealt with that before and uh, it's not great, but I don't know. It doesn't seem to be killing me. Mmm. Not as fast as this vodka tang. It's probably going to put me down. <laughs> That's the other thing, man. I have put a dent 
in the supply. Holy smokes. Just been real frustrating, you know. The first the first week or two, I was pretty good just keeping it, you know, the old sundowner. And then the threat of Wanda came in. And I definitely dipped in a little on that. And then um and then a few days after that, beating into the wind and the light winds. You just I, for me it's it's the light winds. It's the it's the waking up, knowing that you're barely moving, barely getting any sleep because the sails are flopping, flapping, going crazy, or those nights when you actually have to take the sails down. Um, I'm not, I, I cannot leave a mainsail slatting and actually go to sleep. It's like not humanly possible for me. Um, I don't know if other people do that. Uh, and that's a question I, I actually wouldn't mind asking, um, some fellow sailors once I get back on land, but, uh, I would much rather roll 30 degrees on either side, um, than listen to the slatting of a mainsail. Cause all I, I just, I feel like it's just punishment, undue punishment. So, uh, but anyway, yeah, I had this clink today and this, this is going to lead into, my sort of more worrisome uh, issue that has has popped up. So I have this clink, and I'm pretty sure it's one of the cans of food underneath the water bladder, underneath all this sort of stuff. And I, you know, I just like always, uh, you know, I go and hop in my bunk, put my head down, and then clink, clink, clink. And then finally, and I just get up, and then nothing, no noise at all. And then I get into my bunk, and then clink, clink, clink. And I don't know, this one is kind of weird. Um, but I'm I'm sort of crouched right next to, so Mighty Sparrow's deck step mast, which then goes down to a cross beam just inside the cabin which then goes to a big like six foot uh compression post made of wood which then sits on a little bit of the cabin sole uh which then is on a mass step so big hunk of wood uh down below that goes directly to the keel and i'm crouched down there i've got my headlamp on i'm trying to figure out the source of this noise and I'm looking around, and I'm definitely seeing at the base of the compression post, the cabin sole, the floor, is indented. About an eighth of an inch, maybe, sixteenth of an inch, something like that. Not much, but obviously indented. And I believe I have noticed that. I had noticed that before. Um, but not in such a drastic amount. And then I'm sort of looking forward and there's a hatch uh, just forward, a floorboard that you can pull up and it looks like it's bowed up uh, as if like it's gotten wet and it's starting to to bow. But it's all like teak stuff or I'm pretty sure it's teak or mahogany. So it usually doesn't do that. And, uh, and as I'm sort of looking at it, I pull it up and I see that the hatch is actually straight and it's the floor that is bowed downward 
which uh, led me to a little more worry because that uh, obviously what I'm, what I'm looking at is I'm seeing that the compression post is pushing the floor down, um, which in my estimation means that the, uh, the actual mass step, the wood that is underneath the compression post and connected to the keel, the last line of defense, you might say, uh, might be rotting away. And if that's the case, we're in some serious trouble. <laughs> because basically what that means is uh, I tighten up the shrouds and it compresses everything down a little bit more. And then uh, the shrouds get loose again. And then... I do it again and again and again. I, you know, you get the picture. Essentially, you're you're slowly just uh, pulling your mast and compression post right through this thing. And uh, after I finish this podcast, I'm gonna pull up the floorboards and do a little investigating, do a little poking around with the screwdriver and see if I can find rotted wood or see what's going on. Um, the sort of scary part about this is that is a trip killer um, as far as I'm concerned. Uh, not only a trip killer, but like a I need to get back to the United States immediately uh, so that I can get this mast taken off of this boat and sort this thing out because I would think... Uh, it's just going to get worse and worse, um, depending on, you know, what I find down below. So I'm not too, too worried about it because I, I, you know, crank down on the old shrouds and everything. They still seem pretty taut. I don't think I've seen any sort of, uh, loosening on those at all. So I don't think it's happening all that much. Um, <clears throat> but it is, it's a worrisome sign. It's something you don't want to ever see. And when you do see it, it's something you have to jump on. So, I don't know. It's uh, it's sort of scary, but what, what it's forced me to do is take a look at basically plan A, plan B, plan C, and plan D. Um, you know, I came out here knowing that I've got a few different options because this trip's kind of crazy, um, you know, timing-wise and everything. The idea of the full trip is to head down go around the Horn, go into the Pacific, go site Easter Island, sail past it, go to Howland Island, site that one, maybe go on, probably not, and then cruise north into the Pacific, catch the westerlies uh, up above Hawaii, cruise back down, and then around Cape Horn. Now, as I diligently keep going over my charts, I'm starting to see more and more that that is uh, pretty unrealistic. As far as the hurricane season and getting back to Cape Horn in the dead of winter, um, you know, I think I think initially I I sort of felt like uh, I sort of felt like it would be a little bit faster for me to make that whip around in the Pacific, but I don't I don't know I don't know somewhere my my thinking sort of uh, <laughs> I may have bit off more than I could chew, but that's okay. I mean, you know, the other thought was, uh, plan B would be to site 
Howland Island and then head due south, get back into the Pacific, south of uh, the Southern Ocean, and then scream towards uh, Cape Horn, try and round it in like May um, or as late as June. Now, that one comes with a bit of worry because I don't have all the charts I would need to skirt around all those islands around like New Caledonia and all that sort of stuff. I do have a few guidebooks, so I'll, I'll take a look at those. But, um, yeah, I don't know. that that I don't really like that idea too much. Plan C is to go and save Howland Island for another trip, um, hopefully a time where I have a bigger boat and take on some crew and do the whole South Pacific for a year or two. Um, that's more of a retirement plan, I guess, but eventually I get there. Uh, but make it into the Pacific, sight Easter Island alone, and then rip straight down, get back into the Southern Ocean. Then I'd be rounding the Horn, depending on how things go, probably in April again, which would put me back to Maine in July. Um, still an epic trip by any means. I mean, the, the whole purpose of this thing is doubling the horn. Obviously, I would have liked to have seen Howland Island. Um, but, you know, we'll, we'll see what happens. It's, uh, it's not out of the question. You know, there is a plan A+, plus, which is basically I become such a ocean warrior and, and stop pissing and moaning all the time and uh, end up trying to circumnavigate the pacific and then go head for new zealand go into australia cross the indian ocean and then back home for a uh i don't know if i would be the first american to circumnavigate do a solo non-stop that direction uh but sure as heck would be the first person to do it throwing the pacific in there so uh i don't know i that one's pretty unrealistic i'm not gonna lie um <laughs> Uh, the thought of trying to beat my way into the westerlies underneath New Zealand all the way into the Indian Ocean sounds preposterous uh, in this boat. So unless for whatever reason I felt like, oh, man, you know, I'm just going to go way down next to Antarctica. But again, the timing doesn't really line up for that one either. It would have to take me. I'd have to go all the way to like Japan and the Aleutians cross Cross the Pacific going south during like the height of the hurricane season, September, and then take a nice slow roll towards New Zealand so that I'm there basically in December and uh, and then go straight down to Antarctica. So I don't know. <laughs> grand plans, grand plans. So that's uh, plan A plus. And then plan D, the one that, uh, I I definitely hope I don't have to do, but it's basically my uh, my plan for if I have pretty much complete electrical failure, uh, you know, batteries can't work anymore, um, which means the stove doesn't work. Uh, well, may I? You know, I'm pretty sure I could figure out a way to jerry rig that sucker up, and make it. Uh, is that that's not a bad term jerry rig is it i don't who knows hopefully not I've, I've always heard that before but hopefully it does not uh it's not a negative connotation towards anybody i don't mean it to be i just mean basically me going and 
futzing around with it to see if I can make it work without the solenoid. I'm sure I probably could, but oh, I don't like doing that stuff. Propane is a scary, scary thing. <clears throat> so, uh, in any event, uh, yeah, lose that electricity. Then, yeah, it's going to be hard to cook all this food. It's going to be hard to do a lot of stuff. And uh, uh, I don't know. I don't know. That's a, So plan D would be basically to um, skip the Cape Horn thing and do what I call the Atlantic 8, where leave. I left for Maine, which is at about 44 degrees north. So I try to get to 44 degrees south, uh, head towards Cape of Good Hope, and then take the trade winds back up across the doldrums yet again. And uh, depending on the timing, either head to Maine or uh, just head to somewhere on the East Coast. doesn't really matter. Because um, <clears throat> I'd end up in Maine by springtime anyway, by June. Um, I wouldn't want to go up there any earlier because it's so cold. Uh, but yeah, that's, I, you know, that, that's a good, like 20,000 mile trip, something like that. Um, so it'd be pretty cool and be, it'd be a nice voyage better than having a tuck tail right now. But if I, you know, if I go in there and just find crazy rot and can't believe that the mast hasn't plunked right through, then I literally am going to have to turn around today. Um, or make the decision very soon because there's no point in uh, in trying to press on if you've got a boat that is absolutely uh, on the edge of losing its mast. So, I don't know. Frightening things. These are the things I'm thinking of. Um, these are the things going through my head pretty much all the time, all the time. And um, hence why I'm dabbling uh, into my alcohol supply. Mmm. A little more than I probably should, but, um, you know, not sleeping much because of all these squalls, freaking sunburn all the time. It's hot. Yesterday, I believe the cabin got to 95 degrees. Uh, outside was probably 90. I don't know. I don't know. It's crazy. So, I don't know. That That's, you know, it's still, though tragically beautiful out here these cloud formations being able to see these things especially under the sunrise and the sun and the moon and sunset all the colors and everything holy cow i mean the one yesterday i took video of it and you know if you're videoing a cloud you're you're looking at something pretty amazing and uh yeah oh that's that's the saving grace for me for the doldrums. It's the views. I think I think on the last trip, the trip to nowhere, um, those were some of the prettiest doldrums I've ever seen in my life, by far, hands down. I I just had some of the most classic flat become, and that's the weird thing on this one. The doldrums have been. We've had some some no wind days but not much uh it's mostly super crazy light winds but we have not escaped any of the uh northeast east and southeast swell it has been prevalent this whole time and making life pretty miserable and slowing us way down i think if the sea was flat 
we'd priority be well past the equator just because you can sail a big old bulbous bow like a west sail right through it you know on flat water west sail i mean you do five six knots no problem it's when you add those little pesky waves <laughs> that everything slows down oh man I don't know. I don't know. So we'll have to sort of see. Working on another another book, reading another book, um, and then also working on an outline for uh, a sec- another book. Um, I had uh, somebody, uh, a friend of mine, actually mention. He was like, "Hey, you know, with all the experience you've had out there, you you should probably do a little." Um, you know, top tips, sort of one of those books like uh, Sailing a Serious Ocean by John Kretschmer. Um, you know, something where it's basically, uh, things are falling. Where, you know, talk about uh, my opinions on this, that, and the other thing. Halyards, chafing, you know, uh, running rigging, food, storage, blah, 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 all that sort of stuff. And uh, just throw it into a, you know, 50, 60 page book. No big deal. So I'm working on an outline for that. I don't know. It's um, it's kind of interesting. It'd be kind of cool. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I, I don't know what else to say. Honestly, I'm just, I'm at a point now where I, I feel like I'm on the edge of, of being beaten down to a point where I just... I just don't want to be on the ocean in constant motion anymore. Um, but I know it will pass because it always does. And, um, yeah, I mean, it's not like even, even if I, even if I quit now and was like, Oh, I'm going home. I'm out here for another month, month and a half, probably depending on what the winds do. Ah, probably a month, I guess. But, uh, you know, I'd have to have serious reason to do that. There's no, that's, you know, that, that's not something that I, I want to do. I just want, I just want to get out of the doldrums. That's all I want. Oh, the old doldries, man, they are, they are probably one of the toughest things, you know, I, I think that's why I, I've always thought of, you know, the classic, solo nonstop circumnavigation really you know has to be done where you're starting from 40 degrees north or above somewhere in the the pacific or the atlantic ocean and then you go down because that that adds the whole northern part of an ocean two trips through the doldrums i mean that's and then you go through the southern ocean i mean it's um it's part of it, I believe. I, I, I definitely think, you know, when, when somebody sails from um, one of the southern, southern countries and pretty much rips around the southern ocean and maybe jumps up to the equator and back down, there's a lot that's missing there and uh, a lot of, of mental battles and stuff like that. I mean, I, you know, anybody that rips around the southern ocean, that is serious kudos. I would never... Uh, try and tell anybody they're they're lesser than this that and the other thing it's just a different sort of trip i mean you you had you had the month and a half it takes to get from the east coast or europe all the way down to the equator sometimes it is a beast absolute beast
So, I don't know. I'm living it right now. Living it right now. I'm going to go up top, see uh, how far out the next round, the next cell is. And then uh, if it looks like I get a little break, I might try and take a nap, which would be awesome because I am exhausted. I don't think I slept more than about two hours uh, in the last in the last 24, something like that. I don't know. But trying to keep positive, keep the spirits up. And, uh, you know, I used to have a saying, you know, this storm too shall pass. And it doesn't just have to be a storm. It can be a calm or it can be uh, just uncomfortable seas. And that's what's, uh, that's what's going on right now. So thanks for listening and uh, till next time.